Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Season four of the Business Integrity School is sponsored by J.B. Hunt Transport Services, Inc. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. And as you know, this is season four, and we are talking about all things ESG in this video podcast. And to do that today, we have a very special guest, Maria Knapp from Control Risk Group. Hey, Maria. Hi, Cindy. I'm really delighted to join your podcast series. Well, we are excited to have you here. Before we jump into the questions with Maria, let me just tell you all a little bit about her really interesting background. So Maria is a partner at Control Risk Group in the compliance, forensics, and intelligence area for geographically the EMEA area of the world, which is Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And the practice that she's in supports companies that manage and help them manage the reputation and risks that emanate from financial crime, sanctions, controls, social and governance risks, like what we're going to be talking about today, as well as stakeholder management. Now, as a non-practicing lawyer in England and Wales, Maria trained and practiced in finance and capital markets at Clifford Chance in London and in Paris. Maria has worked and lived in France and in Canada, as well as in sub-Saharan Africa, including in this for the Zimbabwe chapter of Transparency International, the Namibian Legal Assistance Center, and the Pearson Peacekeeping Center in Canada. Very interesting. Love to just talk all about that. (laughs) Maria has an LLB from City University, London, and a BA um, from McGill University and Sciences Po in Paris. So Maria, wow, you have a really, really broad uh, background in terms of uh, just where you've lived and what you've done in a number of different countries internationally. And for our audience, especially for the students who listen to these um, video, listen to the podcast or watch the videos, I always like to help them just get to know our guests a little bit and understand kind of your background, how you got into this, what led you to, to where you all are today, and maybe a little bit about some of the stops along the way. Sure. I mean, it's funny when you, when someone reads your, your CV or bio that way, it always sounds Pretty exhausting. How do I have time to, to do that? I think for all of us, especially when you reach kind of certainly my age. Um, I, I I should say there were like 15 Joe jobs before and alongside um, the studies that uh, that went along with that training, um, which I think is probably where I got the base skills for my current job, dealing with people, you know, right. prioritizing, triaging, all of that vital stuff. But um, but that aside, kind of to get where I am today, um, I have always tried to kind of weave one thing into the next, but um, but really tried to kind of move with um, with what what motivated me, what what kind of stimulated me, and what I was curious about. And when I was doing sort of after uh, BA graduation, really interested in governance and transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized um, 
pretty soon into doing that, that actually having a professional background and, and a professional training um, was going to be a really important part of understanding um, how things work. And um, uh, so, you know, some of the governance I did before training as a lawyer, um, where I where I practice structured in finance law, um, was what I felt was missing was my understanding of the the kind of cogs in the global financial system uh -huh, um, yeah. and, and how that all made things churn and made things work. Mm -hmm. um, so going into um, finance law, structured finance um, and capital markets was incredibly useful. Um, I moved from that after about five years um, into just under five years into consultancy with control risks um, with a focus on integrity and reputational risk. Yes. Um, initially for our clients investing in Africa or with activities in Africa, mm -hmm. because I had done work on um, African um, project finance. And then before that, as you mentioned, um, for um, governance organizations on the continent. Um, and so moving into control risks was sort of a natural move in that sense, because it was well, pretty much all the non-financial and non-legal risks related to uh -huh. their assets. Um, so it was looking at contracts, partnerships, supply chain issues. So for instance, through due diligence investigations and stakeholder mapping, um, compliance building, and also monitoring, and um, to an extent, incident investigations. So, there's a natural flow through um, from that. Um, and then since then, I've kind of connected back to the financial um, law training, finance law training in what I do today, um, particularly involving ESG, because more and more we're seeing, um, I guess, supply chains and value chains and companies as actors in the global financial system from an ESG perspective or through that ESG lens. So it's really right. to kind of connect those dots. Yeah. Um, and ESG is becoming one of the things that is kind of super important to um, financial activities globally. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I mean, for students, I recommend always variety is key. And yeah. taking chances is pretty key because lead you to some pretty interesting places. It sure can. My goodness. So, so connecting your kind of financial market background now with uh, the ESG movement, are you finding that you are, or Control Risk Group is engaged by a number of corporate clients essentially because they sense and know there is investor pressure, if you will, or expectations, or talk about that evolution a little bit, because it, it definitely is a hot topic. Yeah, I mean, it, it's for sure a hot topic. And it's something that Control Risks has been doing for um, for over 45 years in, 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 in one way or another, but certainly not in the way that we're talking about it now. Um, I mean, I think we've been looking at um, as a company, especially social and governance risks for a really long time. Yes. Um, and so we're a specialist risk consultancy and our kind of mantra is um, helping clients succeed in a volatile world. And if you ask our analysts, there's volatility everywhere. Yes. Um, but one of the ways that we do this is by providing nuanced assessments um, of the issues our clients are facing so that they can make well-informed decisions. And when it mm -hmm. comes to ESG, that that really means kind of understanding on the ground what's happening, who key stakeholders are that yeah. may not be within your own corporate ecosystem and maybe kind of local communities and 
especially when it comes to issues around human rights and labor rights, um, it's increasingly diverse with the issues are um, covering. And I think what we've seen is that when companies get these things wrong, um, obviously it impacts rice holders, uh, you know, human and social rights holders, it impacts their operations, um, mm -hmm. and it can cause increasingly investors to either not invest or to withdraw. Yes. Um, and by contrast, when companies get it right, social risks can be, um, you know, can add financial benefit um, or uh, just just other less tangible benefit to um, stakeholders um, and cre create a business advantage for them. So yeah. increasingly, we're seeing um, companies treat it as kind of business critical issues. Yes, um, but it can remain still hidden. So companies that haven't got round to kind of including these issues into their um, enterprise risk management um, systems or risk assessments and not identifying these as standalone issues, I think still are dealing with pretty fuzzy zone. Um, but uh, I mean, it's certainly emerging as a discipline in a way that is um, a lot easier to deal with now. And I think probably last point on this is that I guess the way we've broken it up um, is to think about measuring, monitoring, and managing when ah. it comes especially to social performance. Yes. You find those three, you'll see I like things in threes. I think they're <laughs> nice and tidy. But, um, you know, if you measure, it's looking at your own company, your own operations, but also rights holders and stakeholders around you and the, th the impact that you have. Yes. Um, when you think of monitoring, it's keeping track that your compliance right. systems are working well yep. um, and that you're keeping tabs. And then uh, managing is actually tackling those issues that are manageable or engaging. And it's, it's, the, it's the course corrections. Right, right. But in those three streams, it becomes a little bit more tangible for companies. Yeah, I think you're right. And that, that, is, that is incredibly important to do all three of those steps. I mean, you've got to you've got to be able to um, manage at the end, of course, to not only course correct, but also to try to um, mitigate almost proactively once you have identified the risks. Uh, and as you go into the monitoring, then you're able to say, oh, we need to get in front of this next thing that's coming down the pike. So how are we also going to, going to manage for that? Do you think, Maria, that COVID you know, kind of this this collide of COVID and the the rise of of stakeholder capitalism, and it all kind of you know is right here in front of us together. What do you have any thoughts on either how COVID has affected it or maybe um, sped up um, the whole kind of focus on ESG? Or do you think companies are maybe really struggling through it more than they would have if we weren't dealing with COVID at the same time? Good question. It's hard not to see. COVID as a trigger for a lot of things. I mean, I think that some companies um, have been in the business of sustainability or ESG for yep. years um, and, and good not to forget those. And they can be great beacons actually for um, companies who are just starting on their journey. Um, some corporates, lots of institutional investors like pension funds and obviously development finance, um, and, and I think also many companies have made significant investments in governance for years, you know, and, and the G under S and G will be really familiar to people like you and I. Yeah. Um, and, and companies have made very significant investments in resourcing, 
and creating functions and putting systems around that. So some of it is, um, you know, had been ongoing and there, and there was a, there was a maturity developing, but I think ESG taken as a kind of very current concept was really propelled by investors mm-hmm. um, and now by regulators. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think to your question on COVID it's definitely focused people's minds, especially on the, on the social right. side yeah. of things. I think you're right. Um, and I think that, you know, it probably tipped the balance. Um, what's interesting is that at the beginning of all this, you know, I think when it comes to companies' commitments to ESG, um, it could have gone either way, really, with COVID. And I think um, financial strain that comes with, um, right. uh, all, you know, the conditions that companies were working under, um, could have pushed governments and, and could have pushed companies towards much more short-termism right? Um, and just kind of staying afloat um, and, and in a kind of race for economic survival. Or, and I think what we've seen instead is people's minds have been, as I said, focused on how companies treat their people, um, how they treat the environment and how they respond to climate change. So I think, you know, the trend that we were seeing before around governance and responsible business um, it kind of COVID triggered a moment when people who are, you know, real actors in the, in the financial system right. um, and have been regarded as kind of a really important individuals have been regarded as really important um, pressure element in a way for companies uh-huh. as, they, you know, as consumers, as employees collectively, and especially in the West, but not only um, saw that kind of, change for the better was in reach right and um that changed their expectations um and their interaction with the financial system when it comes to especially those social rights Mm. you know they could see that the way that companies responded to covid um the programs that they initiated the way they treated employees these were all things that were within a company's gift to give and I think it set their expectations pretty high. So yeah, yeah I think it's sort of a perfect storm in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah, but you know, out of a perfect storm, hopefully comes some really positive you know, progress um, for the future because it's been such a disruptor. We've all just kind of had to figure out how do we how do we how do we build a new world in light of what we're dealing with now. So let me let me ask you on that question. Do you see differences, Maria, between in geography or it, between sectors, when you are um, asked to come in and help monitor at an aspect of their ESG program, uh, or not even just monitor, but maybe measure, uh, m- help them set up the monitoring and figure out how to how to um, how to manage it going forward. Do you see differences in that between geographies or industries? That's a great question. Um, I see only differences currently with how companies are dealing with this. I haven't seen two companies approach this or address this in the same way. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, uh, the, the, I haven't seen related to geography, although uh, certainly companies that have a global footprint need uh-huh. to consider things a little bit differently. And maybe I can get to that in a minute. I've seen companies respond to this differently depending on, uh, for instance, their corporate structure. Are they listed? Are they not listed? Um, uh, their, the size and scale of their, uh, I guess, risk and support operations. 
know, are they streamlined? Are they more heavily resourced on that end of things? Um, the sector and industry point is a really is a really important one. Um, and almost every company that we've worked with, um, we well, all of the work that we do anyway, we apply in a sector and industry lens to um, conducting materiality assessments, um, which is really the starting point for understanding how you need to respond, um, identify what are the most material risks and where your exposures are. And, and it's really important to do that with a sector and industry lens. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and over and above that, I think what companies have been really gotten a lot out of is, is benchmarking against peers in the industry. Right. And thinking not about that in terms of, oh, well, you know, competitor X is doing nothing. So we can do a little bit and be way ahead of the game. Or competitor Y is like well advanced. How can we like get halfway there? It's been more thinking about, okay, well, what's the standard? And then how can we get inspired by what other what peers are doing? And then what are our clients' and employees' expectations going to be based on those peer responses? Interesting. Um, substantively, the differences that I see are the way that companies are responding organizationally, yeah. so how they resource uh, this, um, and then it's um, what targets and frameworks that they want to, uh, I guess, to put it crudely, report against or, or disclose against. Yes. Those are the most defining factors yeah. Um, yeah. Of, of the different ways in which companies are, um, I guess, working around these issues. Yeah. So I've talked to a fair number of guests this season who are in uh, the corporate sector. And to your point, there. I have noticed a lot of um, difference as well as discussion around how to resource um, this ESG effort, which is, you know, really growing up and becoming it's, it's a thing. I mean, you have to put resources against it, but where does it rest in an organization? And I'm sure you all get asked for your opinion and you specifically on that. And tell us a little bit about what you, what are some of the interesting different models? Because I don't think there's a one size fits all, but what are some of the different models um, that you've seen uh, work in, in companies? So, yeah, no, definitely not one size fits all. Um, one of the things that's, that's really unique about ESG and I guess sustainability issues is that it's so cross-cutting. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, it engages a lot of different functions and kind of component parts of an organization, including some existing functions and as well some newer ones. So when we're thinking about ESG, we're not just thinking about the head of sustainability or the head of ESG. Um, because it's not a one-dimensional change, right? And and if you think about um, uh, quite mechanically, um, the types of business operations that are involved in um, strategizing and implementing ESG programs and setting ESG goals, um, it's going to be kind of people from HR um, uh, and, 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 you know, those running DE&I efforts, um, yeah. employee um, welfare through to all the way down to kind of security and the duty of care implications that they have, right. investor relations right. um, and their reporting obligations to their investors and business development. So it's it's inherently complex in terms of how you organize, it, organize yourself around it. 
Mm -hmm. um, uh, the significance of the issue does warrant dedicated corporate functions, right. uh, in our view, um, or a dedicated corporate role at least. Um, but our clients are giving a lot of careful consideration to you know, why that needs to be. Um, the, the two key factors that, that you wanna make sure or that a company needs to make sure it's satisfying in whatever um, structure it adopts is that firstly, it, for, it furthers their corporate sustainability objectives and their ESG objectives. So um, that it does that, but without ineffective duplication of efforts. Yeah, right. That, you know, multifunctional approach. You've got to make sure people are working together. Yeah. And that's a good argument to have someone or, or some people dedicated to this who have a transversal view. Right. Um, and the second objective is that it enables companies to report um, either in their annual, annual sustainability reports or um, to investor disclosure requirements or right. um, to targets, et cetera. So when it comes to thinking about um, options for organizational models, we've been working with the Ethisphere Institute, uh, which is a for-profit company that defines measures um, and corporate ethical standards. It also provides an annual ranking of best practices in corporate ethics. And yeah. we're working group with their um, business and leadership um, alliance, the Bella, we've been exploring different two, three, four different models. And then obviously with the anticipation that companies will take those and run with them and make them uh, sure. make of them what they will. Yeah. Um, the couple of models that we've looked at so far are the network model, yes. um, the centralized model, and then the decentralized model. So yeah. the network model um, is, uh, is where there's sort of, two or three or, or four key functions that together work as a committee to um, uh, set out the ESG and corporate sustainability, um, uh, I guess, kind of strategy and implementation roadmap, uh -huh. and then work with a number of different sub-functions to actually implement that. Right. You get co-ownership at the top. Um, the they and they co-bear responsibility for making sure that there's a certain effectiveness in that and that can be really useful in companies where for instance i mentioned investor relations um are a really important um aspect of the company because they're a large listed company but they also have um a really large footprint in emerging markets and they need mm -hmm. to make sure that from an employee welfare standpoint um they're really um kind of uh responding to 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 the company's needs there and employees needs there and and that sort of thing where or for instance they handle a lot of um, sensitive data you might need someone in information security to be part of that network so the network will look different depending on the organization got it but that's a co-ownership model the centralized model is something that people might recognize from um like abc compliance where you've got a head of compliance who really kind of co-opt people within the company to centralize um, policies and procedures right. and, then, and then centralize um, information gathering for reporting, in this case on right. ESG issues. Right. And a decentralized model also would be familiar um, to you, Cindy, from your background where, you know, you have someone maybe responsible ultimately for um, the issues, but you have a team across the business, um, mm -hmm. either champs or uh, regional, you might have regional heads of ESG 
um, mm-hmm. or something like that, where you're filtering down, but still a central uh, point of accountability under ASG. Yeah. So those are just three. Um, yeah. yeah. And do you see companies adopting all three of those? Just very that, that you have worked with, so there really isn't a, a predominant model as of yet. There, everyone's trying to figure out what works best for them. Yeah, I mean, and there are companies that are trying out a model yeah. and 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 really open to adapting it to their needs. Yeah. But it was really interesting on our first call when we in the working group when we tabled these, everybody had a different take, and people were thinking about hybrid models already, um, which is great. So I think yeah. the level of engagement on these issues, and we've been through this journey for ABC compliance. We know what that looks like, and so I think people kind of get a sense of what um, uh, what organizational change looks like when it comes to risk management. It's pretty recent right. memory. Right. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and compliance is obviously going to be one of the functions that's going to be heavily involved in the ESG efforts, regardless of which of those three um, companies end up choosing, because there's just so many, so many touch points there. Hundred percent, and across all the models, that's the the really consistent um, point that yeah. the compliance function plays some role or the major role or the leading yeah. role in yeah. any of these models. Yeah. yeah, well, and I think in part because we've recently companies have been on this compliance journey of figuring out how do you set up a compliance program and gather the people to you know organize the policies and the procedures and figure out how to monitor it and how to measure it and how to manage it. Um, it then you know it's just applying it in a different way, but it's it's exercising that same muscle um, that's been brought to bear through that discipline, which which oftentimes has to be cross functional too. So it's it's just looking at it through perhaps a, a, a different lens, but using the same tools could be. So that's quite interesting. So let, let me ask you now about um, the, the monitoring part of it a little bit more specifically. And when you're, when you're working with a company and you're, they're trying to get their head around, what does it really mean to measure and then monitor and manage something like this? How do you help them understand the difference between like their own footprint versus Mm -hmm. the larger footprint um, that exists because of the supply chain and, and how far back they should go and, and where does the, how do they do all of that monitoring? I can imagine a company feeling completely overwhelmed when they're trying to figure out what they have to do, what they should do and what they actually can do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to start with the kind of line between their own footprint and, and their supply chain footprint. Yeah. Cindy, that's a really important distinction. And, I, and I'm glad that, you, um, that you've made it. Um, because I think when, when a company is thinking about their own social compliance profile, um, it's really kind of what they do, where they do it, um, and how they do it. Mm-hmm. When they're thinking about their value or their supply chain, those are issues that are in someone else's corporate control, ultimately. Um, you know, what they do, where they do it, how they do it. Um, in an ideal world, you have some sort of regular engagement with your supply and value chain. Right. Um, and you have some influence over their social performance. But we have a lot of examples where that's not the case. You know, ultimately, you may have you may not have the choice over your supplier, uh, your business critical supplier in a, in a high risk environment. 
or you may have very few, or you may be one of, uh, you know, they may be a really important supplier for you, but you may be one of hundreds of their clients. And right. I couldn't give a hoot. So it's a really tricky one. In terms of um, corporate responsibility, uh, the regulatory trends, and especially when it comes to obligations on companies um, related to social performance disclosures, they indicate that um, there's going to be increasingly um, a, a, a responsibility on corporates to extend um, their responsibility to their supply chain in, in ways in which they only a handful of companies really have done in the field of ESG so far. Maybe handful is an exaggeration, but a small proportion um, versus just their own kind of direct corporate activity and footprint. Uh-huh. Um, so increasingly, first line suppliers are going to be viewed as part of a company's broader ESG ecosystem. Um, and you know, we're seeing um, already in Europe, for instance, uh, at the European Union, but also individual member states. Um, requiring companies to disclose on their supply chain um, and to conduct, um, uh, for instance, human rights due diligence into their suppliers. Wow. um, And in their value chain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's not a trend that will go away. So if anything, it'll it'll expand. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that the SEC is looking at increasing um, ESG due diligence requirements too, initially in, in environmental but right. also then in social. So there's that reputationally for companies, um, you know, in terms of the this trend of proximity between your own footprint and, and, and someone else's, it's no surprise that there's a really strong link between oh, huge. Have a business critical yeah. member yeah. of your value chain and they're doing bad stuff. You know, the media is not gonna um, right. distinguish between those two. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think yeah, consumers, but- consumers as a whole, are less understanding and forgiving, if you will, of these links in the supply chain. They just see the end, right? And yeah. and and they have certain expectations of what what that composite whole is at the end. Um, but for companies, that does mean trying to figure out how do we work together and how do we even set targets when they're not a hundred percent ours, but they're, you know, a couple of links back in the supply chain and how far back are they supposed to go in this supply chain? I'm sure you get asked that too. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, how, how much can you control your supply and value chain? How can you set targets for them? What can you even know about them? Right. All the, you know, precisely the right questions and those answers will be different not only for each company, but each market they're operating uh, in and the different right. types of suppliers they engage with. But right. really importantly, I mean, the available data points alone are going to differ between kind of what you they know will. about your own operations and some of your key suppliers and then some of your kind of farther along ones. Yes. Um, and due diligence, I think, is really, really key. Um, supply chain due diligence is really key. Um uh, as I said, anyway, in some countries, it's going to be mandatory. And in the European Union, under certain conditions, it's going to be mandatory anyway. So uh, wow. it's yeah. kind of non-optional. Within that, there's a spectrum. So there's kind of baseline screening, which you would use anyway for um, your uh, sanctions exposure um, and for uh, financial crime expo- exposure and, and things of that nature, political, you know, PEP political exposed persons, lists, et cetera. That now increasingly, and certainly in our approach, covers also 
key E, S, and G issues. Okay. You can do a pretty, pretty good baseline screening of your supply and value chain. So there's sort of no excuse, I guess. But obviously, some of the issues related to especially social performance, um, and unless there's been an environmental incident, are really hard to pick up in that kind of screening. So it does leave a lot of blanks. Yeah. Um, so there are um, there are much more uh, in depth kind of versions of of that. Mm, got um, it. And, um, you know, in, in deeper due diligence, um, well, I mean, I guess one, one of the things that's probably worth highlighting is our, or the approach we've taken is to say to companies, look at what you're already doing and look at what you're already, the information you're already gathering about your right. suppliers and, and your broader value chain and, and work with that. Because there's a lot in the kind of questionnaires that um, our clients are already sending out to suppliers. Right. You can enhance those. Yes. Taking a, a sector and industry lens and an ESG specific lens. Right. And, and really get a whole lot more out of that. So there are really yeah. efficient approaches to that. Yeah. Um, we also increasingly um, use interviews with key stakeholders and kind of supplier management teams. And I think that, you know, that's a process in evolution. You can't always get access to that, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, uh, you can um, then, if you know, if, if these are, business critical suppliers with a really significant footprint or profile, um, we do a lot more on the ground audits and, mm. and companies are starting to exercise their audit rights with a view to ESG assessments. Uh, whereas previously you might've done that, you know, pre M&A or um, pre-JV. Right. Um, or mostly the financial crime side of things. Right companies are saying, well, go have a look around, like look at their operations, Interesting. how are employees treated, talk to um, local communities, get a read on uh, what that situation is. Um, but I think, you know, as you said, we've worked with companies where issues arise that are not first line, right? So you and I, in our previous conversations have talked about, um, uh, a mining company that we worked with um, where there were certain allegations related to uh, their first line supply chain uh, and the use of child labor. Um, you know, when we went in to help them, uh, we discovered through on the ground investigations um, and through uh, on the ground interviews, not only with their own people, but with the community uh, around that, um, Actually, it wasn't their first line supply chain. There were issues with child labor um, and children working in the third line supply chain, working after school um, as a derivative of the agricultural sector that intersected with this yeah. mining company's operations. Yeah. So wait, how did we get from first line and what would first line have been for them to, and then what was second? And then you said you found the problem actually in the third line. So what, yeah. what are each of those so first line is, you know, your, uh, your, your direct suppliers, right? Okay. So if you're in the manufacturing industry, you're getting, you know, Chinese raw materials. Yeah. Um, you're in the um, Middle Eastern or South American um, infrastructure sector. You are working with labor agencies that are bringing on kind of um, uh, workers. Um, uh, you know, you're working in, I guess, um, uh 
to give a more benign example, you buy printer paper <laughs> um, from you yep. know a U.S. printer paper supplier. Those yep. are your direct suppliers. The let's take the paper um, producer, although probably categorized as pretty low risk. Um, there they have a pulp supplier potentially, and right. they're processing that. That's the second line. Got it. Um, and gosh, I don't know what their first line suppliers would be, but I think probably pulp and tree planting yeah. are one line. But you see what I mean? So it's it's each Go, goes back further and further. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the mining of- company actually had a third. It, it's it's as you chase that trace that supply chain back to the component, the materials within the component, potentially the raw materials. It gets further and further back. Is that? Is that right? That's exactly right. So this mining company had suppliers of raw materials, uh-huh. um, but those raw materials were then actually supplied by a number of different um, companies. Right. right. And some of those companies were getting those raw materials from the agricultural sector because um, the the raw materials were a derivative product of um, working the ground for agricultural businesses and um they were sort of taken out of the agricultural supply chain and passed over to the mining supply chain. Uh, got this it. was really kind of far, far <laughs> away from them, which, which means it's a lot trickier to tackle. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of options to companies um, that ultimately will just come from finding out in the, in the detail what's going on. You know, yeah. that's, that's just basically that the solution will be different in every case. Right. But it will come from really understanding what's happening on the ground, really understanding the social dynamics. Got it. And how they're, how they're, how they're relating to your business and the impact of your own activities on that local ecosystem. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's really important to think about impact. I think the other thing that's really important when you're thinking about your supply and value chain is, you know, you companies have got to calibrate and triage and prioritize. Yeah. Um, and take a, a risk-led approach to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. As, right. As you will, you know, as we'll, as we'll be familiar for those of us who worked in compliance for a long time. Right. Um, and third-party management. So companies will differentiate between their supplier risk level sure. um, from low to high, typically according to the supplier's activities. Yeah, right. Um, uh, the risk linked to externalities and, and right. operating environments, and that can be countries, um, you know, and then, and then their significance in the supply chain. So, right. you know, going back to the, the printer paper supplier, you would treat with probably a lower level of caution than your Chinese raw material supplier. Right, right. Um, and that's an important part of the process because I think otherwise it can be quite overwhelming to know, you know, the yeah. question isn't, isn't only how deep I need to go, but how how deep I need to look at each one of my first line suppliers. Right, right. And they're, right. they're going to be the priority. This has been a fabulous conversation, Maria. And before we leave it, there's one last question that I want to ask you. So for companies, somebody within a company that is just getting started here and wants to learn a little bit more or a student who wants to perhaps go a little bit deeper, do you have any good recommendations on resources, either some books or a podcast series or maybe a documentary, something that they could watch? Yeah, um, I do. Uh, I have a, I have a bunch actually. Um, so I think, you know, learning resources, I, um, I think the SASB 101 trainings that are free on their website are actually really neat, neat complement to, um, academic training. 
yeah. um, and, and academic learning. Um, they're, they're really quite um, practical um, and available to everyone, which is super. Um, I subscribe to the Financial Times Moral Money newsletter. Again, I mentioned when we started, I think it's really important to understand kind of what the financial sector is doing. And, and there's right. a lot of great, great, really understandable coverage uh, of that in the Moral Money newsletter. Um, I listen to podcasts developed by uh, a company called Reco, uh, Re Colin Co., um, which is called The Future in Sound. Um, and they cover quite a wide range of issues when it comes to ESG, um, theory, implementation, ratings, the whole game. Wow, yeah. And then I'll plug our own podcast series, yeah, um, which is the Legal and Compliance Insights podcast series at Control Risks. Great. A whole series on ESG. So, awesome. Um, yeah. There's lots, there's just so much out there. I think the, there is It's almost like, well, how do you whittle it down? Right, right, right. Which is why I love to ask those who are deep into the field and, and experts, what, where do they go? Where do they get their information? Because I think that's it's helpful to somebody who's trying to get started to know that they've, they've grasped, grasped onto a, a resource that, you know, others use who are deep in the profession. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for your time today, Maria. This has just been a fabulous episode. So much learning, so much. I just, I can't thank you enough. I appreciate your time. I'm excited to hear the the other podcasts in the series. It'll be great. Thanks, Thanks so Maria. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T H E. BIS, which stands for the Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.